It, uh, good to see everybody. It, it, it feels a bit strange, I'll tell you, on Sunday, not knowing who's going to show up and who's going to stay home. I understand at this time it's nice to have both options. Um, but thank you for coming. Thank you for watching. It, it will be nice one of those days when we hear, I make all things new and we can all be together again, right? Um, we're continuing in our series in the, in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today. Uh, we started Luke during the Advent season, and now we're going to continue on. One of the, the problems, well, it's a good problem to have, but the way we work through a lectionary, we, we, we're not able just to spend a time going through a whole book. We end up kind of hopping through a book. Uh, that's kind of our system here in order to get through the whole scripture in four years. Uh, but I, I hope you do read along and, and fill in these gaps. We try to hit the highlights of the text we go through. Uh, and give you enough information to help you read uh, with some understanding. But we'll, we'll move forward into Luke 4 today, but before we read the text, I want to quickly hit what we'll skip, uh, because our focus today uh, in, in chapter 4, what, what comes before it, is really setting the stage for the text. As we followed Luke's telling of the story through Advent, we've all seen his focus on the fact over and over and over that God comes to all people, not just the Jews, not just the religious elite, but to all people, right? That was the message that we got all through the season of Advent, that God's coming was to all of us. And today, the church celebrates Epiphany, the celebration of the, the Gentile Persian kings coming to worship the newborn king of kings. It's that same idea that the gospel is for the whole world. And, and Luke sets this up uh, in a couple ways. He, he does a genealogy and a test. Now, he starts in, in chapter 3, about verse 23, with the genealogy. A genealogy is not out of place in the Gospels. Matthew does it too. But Luke does something really unique. Instead of just going back to Abraham, he goes all the way back to Adam and one more step back, calling Adam the son of God. And his point here, once again, is broadening our focus for us to realize that God's coming to the whole world, that Jesus is this descendant from God. He is God in the flesh. But he's also not just for the Jewish people. He reaches beyond that. And, and then this temptation story, right? Jesus goes out into the wilderness. You're familiar with the temptation story. And really, the, the temptations that come to all people, right? Um, at first, he says, you're hungry, Eat what you have, you know, make some food, eat it. And, and, and this temptation for us to be caught up in what we have and what we can do and what we can possess. And then he moves on to the, you know, I'm going to take you up here. I'm gonna, you can have authority over all these kingdoms of the world. And, and it's this temptation toward control and power, which we all struggle with. And then the last one is, you know, jump off the temple, and let the angels catch you because you want to be visible. You want people to realize who you are. You want other people's reputation of you to be, to be clear. You want them to know who you are. And we do the same. We're tempted by what people think of us. And yet Jesus stood faithfully through all these challenges. And then as Luke continues, you begin to see in the text that we're going to read today that the local boy becomes famous, right? He's going to go back home to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's going to speak in the synagogue there. And Luke builds up to it in the first couple of verses. I'll read 14 and 15 and then continue on. But you'll see this local boy, Jesus, from Nazareth, has become famous. Verse 14 of Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone 
praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, as he, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his, home, in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So after Jesus comes out of this tempting time in the desert, he starts working his way through Galilee, He's teaching in the synagogues, and he's doing miracles, especially in Capernaum, which becomes kind of his central hub of ministry. And then he comes home, comes back to Nazareth, right, where the people had watched him grow up, where people had hired him, his father, to work for them. And he heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as would have been his custom, and because he was the local boy, uh, it would have been packed. Everybody was there to hear what he had to say. And the usual custom in the synagogue, maybe you know this, but I'll tell it to you anyway, uh, uh, different people would read the scripture and then teach, and they handed Jesus the scroll, meaning he was the guy that's going to read and teach for the day. So he, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah, he opened it up, he read the passage, and then he sat down, because when you sit down, that's when you would begin to teach. But the passage that he reads, it says he found this passage specifically, it's a biblical foundation for his mission. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it to chapter 62, although it wasn't chapter 62. It was just rolling a scroll out, all this text. And he reads this thing about his calling. Hi, Goulds. Good to see you. Some of you don't know the Goulds. They've been away for a couple years, two years, three, two years. They're going to talk after communion. Let Jeff know. What it, we'll do it then, okay? Good to have you guys with us. Anyway, every eye is fastened on Jesus as he sits down, as he starts to teach. But there's a few things in this text that he's read that are pretty radical, and they define what he's called to do. The first thing is this audacious claim of messiahship. It starts out, the thing he's reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, one of the, the troubles with the English translation of the Bible is that we see Christ as Jesus' last name. 
Jesus Christ. It would be better translated Jesus the Christ because it's actually a title. It comes from the Hebrew for Messiah, the anointed one, the Christos. And what he's saying right here, in, in, in front of all this, he's, when he, especially when he says, this is fulfilled in me, he's making this bold claim that he is the Messiah. He's this ruler from God who will sit on the throne of, of David and restore Israel to what it is, what it was. And once again, the Jews, we've, we've talked about this, but I want you to get this. They saw this as a political leader. This is the guy that's going to come. We've been oppressed by Rome for all these years. We've been oppressed by the Greeks. We've been oppressed by the Babylonians. And now the Messiah is going to come and set us free. But it was a severely limited understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do. It was, it was one of these bold claims that, that they didn't even quite get what they were hearing. You guys remember Muhammad Ali, the boxer? He would make these bold, audacious claims all the time. And he was on an airplane one time, and the stewardess said, Mr. Ali, you have to fasten your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she smiled back and said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> so this, you know, this is, he was making a claim, but he didn't quite get what he was saying. And, and, but Jesus totally understood that the listeners didn't get what it meant when he was saying, I'm the, the one who has been anointed. I'm the Messiah. And he says the Messiah is going to do things. He's going he's to do things like bring good news and freedom. In verse 18, good news, gospel, right, to the poor. In verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's referencing the Old Testament custom of the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year, in the Old Testament law, they were supposed to give the land a rest, and everybody rested. There was no farming, no agriculture. They would just eat what came up. And then after seven, seven years, on the 49th year, at the end of that year, they would call it the year of Jubilee. And it was a, a, a trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement to declare the year Jubilee. And, and during this time, all debts were forgiven. If you had, during that 50-year period, uh, gone bankrupt or had some financial issues and had to sell your land, you would get your land back. If you'd, if you'd been sold into slavery to pay your debts, you would be set free. This 50th year was a, an economic reset for the whole country. And that's the, the language he's using, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Great news for the poor. It was a chance to start over. And Jesus is saying, I'm the anointed one, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the embodiment of this reset of everything. He also talked about this related idea of freedom for those who were captive. He says it in verse 18, freedom for the prisoners to release the oppressed. Once again, now, if you think of this kind of language and you think of what they're expecting in a Messiah, they want a political liberator. They want someone that's going to turn the tables it sounds just like what they want. And they, they're amazed at his words. They think they're beautiful. But there is one more central idea in what he's saying. I've talked in the past about how Jewish literature, Hebrew literature, is often built around what we call a chiastic structure. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which it looks like an X, and it's like things narrowing and getting wider again. And very often... Uh, when, they, when, when Jewish people or Hebrews would write in chiastic structure, what they would do is they would share an idea, they would share another idea, and then they would back out by repeating the second idea and repeating the first idea. And often, 
if there was a central, most important idea, they would put it in the middle. Now, we have chiastic structures in our language too, believe it or not. We don't always put the meaning in the middle. But if I was to say to you, the tough, when the going gets tough, what happens? The tough get going, right? That's a chiastic structure. Or if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail, right? It's, it's a literary device where you kind of back two ideas and then back, back out. Well, like I say, the Jews would put something in the middle. And if you look at this text, what he's quoting here from Luke 4, 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. First idea, A, to preach good news to the poor. Second idea, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Third idea, recovery of sight for the blind. And then he backs out. The second idea comes again, to release the oppressed. Same thing as freedom for the prisoners. And what's the last thing? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good news for the poor. You see, what he's doing here is he's quoting this chiastic structure from the Old Testament to to focus in on what he's going to do. But the central idea, I think, that he's trying to communicate is this recovery of sight for the blind. Because the problem is, <laughs> the problem is what the Jews wanted a Messiah is they, instead of being the oppressed and the poor, they want to be the rich and the oppressors. They just want it flipped. They want to be re-exalted to their place of glory, and they want Rome to be brought down. And what Jesus is saying, I think, by couching this recovery of sight to the blind in the middle is saying, I'm going to help the people who don't see clearly what it is that God's doing see it. In Ezekiel 12, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, you're living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see. And when you, when you see what's going on in, in the synagogue this morning, as Jesus is talking about his mission, they don't want to see what he's actually saying. In Jesus, they saw this liberator from Rome. So everything that they, they wanted in that frame fit. He's going to, oh, it's good news for the poor. He's going to release the captives because they're looking at it from a perspective. But it's the wrong viewpoint of what Messiah is. So the heart of Jesus' mission as the Messiah was the opening of blinded eyes. The message moves from this generic quotation of a prophet to something that hits home right there in Nazareth. It's not just some traveling preacher. He's saying, I'm God, come in the flesh. I'm the Messiah. And, and you begin to see the reaction just a little bit as it all plays out because seeing clearly when that happens, it makes it personal. He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Right now, guys, I'm the Messiah right now, right here. And they love it. They were all amazed at his teaching, but they also wonder. That, the Messiah, now, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the kid we saw growing up? Like, we've, we saw him playing here. We saw him, you know, he wasn't the brightest bulb sometimes. He seemed a little different. Some, you know, they have these, these beautiful things he's saying, but there's this little bit of hesitation. And, and in, in some ways, that isn't this Joseph's son. It's kind of saying, like, we know you. We know where you came from. We knew you when. You were little. We like what you have to say, but we want to fence it in a little bit by kind of positioning you and us and realizing that, okay, this is Joseph's son. This is, he's one of us. 
And we do the same thing with Jesus very often. You know, Jesus, yes, love me, forgive me, help me, but don't do that to the people that hurt me, please. (laughs) Right? The people that have taken advantage of me, I don't want you to treat them like you treat me. Or Jesus, yes, I'll follow you, but make sure the place you're going is somewhere that I'd really like to go. I'd rather you take me to where I want to go than someplace I don't want to go. Or Jesus, yes, I get that everything I have is yours, but I really need this thing, and who knows what tomorrow might bring. I've got to be careful. See, we want the Messiah to show up, but we also want the Messiah to be Joe's kid. We want him to be the guy that we know. We want him to be the guy we have some connection with, some pull with. But when you see who the Messiah is, it takes it from a concept that is what I want it to be to a point where Messiah stakes a claim on my life. And that's when it gets rough. And Jesus sees this. They, they want him. He says, you, get, you guys, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, do some miracles here. Do them like you did in Capernaum. We, we've heard about them. And now that you're home, do them here. You're one of us. You owe it to us. And then he says it point blank in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Because you know what? You guys want to control. You guys want me to be who you want me to be. And I'm trying to tell you who I really am. But they're accepting him, right? Right? It says they think his words are wonderful. And they want him to do things there. But Jesus realizes that they're accepting him not as he is, but as they want him to be loving and accepting him as a means to an end. I I had a friend years ago who was talking about their relationship with another person. And I thought it was a good relationship. And my friend said, actually, you know what? It's, it's kind of a utilitarian relationship. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, he, he treats me kind of like a wheelbarrow or a hammer. I said, what do you mean by that? And this person, my friend said, well, he thinks I'm useful to him, so he's going to take care of me like he would his wheelbarrow. He's not going to leave his wheelbarrow out in the rain. He's not going to leave his tools lying around in the dirt because he needs them. But my friend said he doesn't actually care about me. He cares about what he can have through me. And so, yes, he takes care of me, but it's a very instrumental thing. And I thought, wow, that's, and that's what we do with the Messiah. We, we, we love Jesus, but we want him to do what we want him to do. And Jesus thieves through that conception. And, and he pushes it because sometimes seeing is painful. Sometimes when we see it clearly, it actually hurts. Their point is, you know, you're, you're one of us. Grant them some status, and he tells two Old Testament stories, right, about two famous Old Testament prophets, stories that everybody in that synagogue already knew. The first one is Elijah, during the time of drought when he was speaking against Ahab and Jezebel, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, and he fled to, to safety And he found this widow that he kind of took care of and she kind of took care of him. It was a kind of a mutual caring relationship during that three and a half years. And what Jesus says is, you remember that widow that took care of Elijah? There were lots of widows in Israel, but he went to Sidon. He went to Gentile territory. And then he tells another story. Elisha healed this this leper named Naaman. Remember, Naaman was the, the chief of the Syrian army. And he actually heard about Elisha because he had attacked and captured some Jewish slaves, and the little slave girl in his house said, the prophet could heal you of your leprosy. And Naaman goes back, and he goes to the king, and eventually goes to Elisha, and he gets healed. And Jesus says, remember that story? There were lots of lepers that were one of us. 
But God used Elisha to heal the one that wasn't one of us. The point is that God will do what he will do. He's not beholding to us. We don't, he's not Joe's son when he comes into our life. He, he's the Messiah. And very often we're, we're, we're blinded to that truth because we want him to be a certain way. And that kind of seeing is very difficult. It's personal. And sometimes it can be painful. And often, I'll be honest, we prefer to be blind to what Jesus really wants to do because blindness brings a false sense of control. If we can just keep Jesus to be who we think he is, Joe's son, somebody we know, then it, it gives us a sense that we're in control. See, even in that comment in verse 22, they're positioning Jesus in a, in a relationship where they have some power over him. And when he insults them by saying they have no power over the Messiah and his mission, in verse 28 and 29, when he, he says, guys, it's not about you. It's bigger than you. They get furious. They drive him out of town to the, to the, the edge of a cliff, and they're going to throw him over because they, they'll let him know who's in control. They're going to tell. They're going to show him. How dare you talk that way to us? You're Joseph's son now. <laughs> they don't want the Messiah from the viewpoint that Jesus is communicating, and they will take control and make him do what they, what they say. See, Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind, and very often we would choose to stay blind rather than let the full truth of Jesus sink in. We like the message of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. You guys didn't come here because you don't like the message of Jesus but we like to put parameters around it. If it challenges the things we hold dear, we look the other way. It forces us, if it forces us to difficult ideas that we don't know how to settle, positions that we don't know how to hold, then we kind of turn and think, oh yeah, he's just Joseph's son. One of my favorite examples of this is a bumper sticker that I'm sure you Mennonites have seen. It says, I'll just read it, when Jesus said, love your enemies, I think he probably meant don't kill them. And we kind of chuckle at that, right? But just think about that for a minute. Jesus did say, love your enemies. It's not a huge assumption to say that means don't kill them. But how do you live in a world where we let our enemies live? Right? Does that really mean what Jesus said? Does he, you know, yeah, he means love your enemies, but like in war, you don't love your enemies in war. You need to win the war, right? That's one of those areas, like that turn the other cheek. Oh, I, I don't know. This person hurt me. I don't want to be exposed again. I don't want to be vulnerable again. Or here's a good one. When you forgive 70 times seven, forgive, just forgive, forgive again, forgive again. Well, we all like that until we get tired of forgiving. And then we'd rather Jesus say something else. Well, I know Jesus, you know, seven times. This is plenty. That's what Peter said, seven, seven, seven times is enough, right? We want to keep Jesus in our boxes of what we want him to be instead of letting him rip the, the, the blindness from our eyes to see who he really is and the claim that he makes on our life. We think we can keep control. How much control did they have? They took him right to the edge of the cliff, and what happened? He just walked away through them. Why? They're, this, 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 
crowd is furious and hot, and they're going to push him over a cliff, and somehow he just walks right through them and walks away. They're not in control at all. See, the Messiah has come to embody the truth to us. And often the biggest obstacle to seeing the truth is our own desire to keep things the way we want them to be. Jesus and following him is going to make us feel uncomfortable. Because we won't have the answer. We'll go into situations we won't know what to do. We'll we'll love people that don't love us back. We'll, We'll love people that other people get mad at us for loving them. And it's awkward and uncomfortable, but that's the blindness we need to set aside. That's who the Messiah is, and that's what he does. So as we, as we wrap up, let's, let's reflect on how we, how we live in order to see the truth clearly today. You know, it's, it's, it's all in Scripture. This, these, these, everything we need to, to understand, we can read here. It says in, in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. But the challenging call is to let it actually penetrate, to read, love your enemies, and let that be what Jesus said. Try to figure that out. To read, forgive 70 times 7, and let that be what it is. To surrender to the truth as Jesus reveals it. Yes, to let him preach good news to the poor and release the oppressed, but to let him open our eyes to the things we've blinded ourselves to because we don't want to see him as he really is because it's too scary. The truth will set us free, it says, although the journey of letting go of the falsehoods we've built our lives on may be a really painful process. The challenge is being open to the truth when the truth out there hits home. That's what we see happening in our text, right? They love the prophet Isaiah. They read it in the synagogue all the time. And they love that Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah. They even love the fact that he said it's fulfilled today because he's one of theirs. Oh, wow. And then he says, but it may not look the way you think it looks. God may go to the Gentiles. He may not do what you want him to do right here in Nazareth. The truth out there that they loved has now hit home. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. That's what the text says, until they weren't amazed anymore. They were amazed until they weren't, when the truth out there hits home. And, you know, you're, you're, we're all here today. You could be other places today, right? You could be watching something else on, if you're watching online. Obviously, we're Jesus followers. Obviously, we hold the scriptures to be the word of God, and we say we surrender to his leading. But when the truth hits home, that's when we have to still be open to it. In those moments, we can cling to our blindness to feel safe. We ignore certain things. Peter's preaching on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he talks about, you've just killed the Messiah. And it says in Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That last phrase, what shall we do, is the difference between the listeners in Pentecost and the listeners in the synagogue to Jesus. They were mad, but they weren't saying, okay, Jesus, what should we do so that we can see the truth clearly? They were saying, we're going to get rid of your version once and for all. In Pentecost, they're cut to the heart and they say, what 
should we do? There's this fork in the road. Will we let the truth penetrate our lives, even if it's hard, even if it challenges us, even if we don't understand all the implications? Or will we entrench ourselves with what we think the truth should be and defend it and control it? Now, how do you know when you're at the fork in the road? How do you know? Well, the text, I think, gives us some really good advice here. It doesn't do a point blank, but the story does. In our own lives, we need to start noticing the rise of emotion. When they were challenged with the truth of Jesus, it says in verse 28, they were furious when they heard it. How many of you have had moments in your life that you've had that feeling? A rising of anger. So mad. You hit, you know, I don't know what you hit. I don't know what you kick. I've kicked water bottles behind the basketball bench, you know, and uh, when I get mad, that rising of emotion, or there are, other, there are other emotions, like despair. How many times have you just been kicked in the gut and you just feel that it's not a rising, it's more like a down, but it just overwhelms you? It's a rise of a negative emotion, or grief, or frustration. Those, those emotions in and of themselves aren't bad things. They're indicators guy who's helped me a lot, Thomas Keating, calls them afflictive emotions, frustration, grief, despair, and anger. And he says, when you see those things launching in your life, it means something's going on underneath. And you need to stop long enough to let the Spirit lead you into what is going on. They got so mad that Jesus would dare say that God might want to love the Gentiles as much as he loved his buddies in Nazareth. Well, why were they so mad? Because they had the wrong view of Messiah. And when we notice a quick burst of emotion, whether it's anger, frustration, or despair, it's a sign that what we want is coming into conflict with what really is. And we need to question, okay, what is it here that I'm wanting? Where is it that I'm not being open to the truth in my own life? We often, we either lash out verbally or sometimes we withdraw. There's a a great... um, Proverb that's quoted in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The way you react gives you insight to what's going on inside. Just like when they got so mad, it was obvious that they weren't accepting the Messiah for who he was. The Jews were mad because he's saying that we aren't God's favorites here in Nazareth. The world is his favorite. And Jesus was making that very clear. Don't think because you knew me when I was a kid, that you're going to get this special exalted position just because you knew me. You've got to follow me. This is, this is, I'm the Messiah. And the question at that moment would be, could they let their anger show them the false grasp of who God is and how God is? And can we do the same thing? When we have this burst of emotion, when we're so angry or absolutely devastated, can we say, what is it in me that's holding on to something that's not holding me up? Can we do that resisting the urge to control? The listeners in our text do not resist the urge to control. They move him to the edge of the mountain, right? But can we resist that urge? In that moment, can we say, okay, can I just breathe and let the Spirit show me what's going on inside? Can I pray about it over the next few weeks? What is this, God, that you've... I don't understand this. And let the Spirit teach us. And it really comes back to the issue of who's in charge in our lives, which is the whole point he's making there in his mission. He's in charge. 
But we trust that everything that comes to us is for us, that God is bringing good to us even when it doesn't feel that way. That God's using even the hard and the painful experiences to shape us for our own good. It goes back to the oldest story of time. Right? Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes and he says, For God knows when you eat from it this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He says to Eve, he's, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want your best. And then it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They wanted to be like God instead of letting God guide their steps. It's the age-old temptation for us to take control of our life. And you know the problem is we're not in control. That's why you have the outburst of emotion. Because you're not. We're not in control. Things are going to happen that are going to just drive you crazy. And if you can't begin to at a deep level, surrender to the leadership of Jesus, even when things don't make sense to you. If, if in that moment you'd rather blind yourself to the fact that he's the Messiah and he's calling you to follow, then you're going to miss the whole point. They grasp for control, for power, elevating themselves. We're going to throw this guy off a cliff. Eve says, I'm going to eat that fruit. Here, Adam, you do it too. We just give in to these emotions instead of allowing the spirit to expose our own idolatry underneath that gives birth to them. And it's a challenging moment coming face to face with the truth in a new way. Seeing that what we thought Jesus was going to be to us, maybe he's not going to be that. He's going to be something different. And then learning to trust that that's actually what we need. But if we can slowly learn to do that, we see our, our lives move from painful surrender to healing freedom. The truth is that we, just like the Jews, have built our lives and our personal identities around certain thoughts and certain ideas. And very often, I'm speaking to myself here too, us in the church, we have built a Jesus that works for us. Just like the Jews had built a Messiah that worked for them. And let me just tell you, Jesus comes to bust that model wide open. And it will be uncomfortable. And we, even now, I'm just wrestling with, what does church look like after a pandemic? Right? How do we do the teaching? How do we do the programs we've done when people are scared to volunteer now because they're working with, other people? <laughs> How do we do things when, you know, well, clubs five years ago, if, if we had five volunteers that had colds, they just came and blew their nose while we had clubs. But now if you have a cold, they all stay home. How, how do we do that? How, I think what Jesus has done through the pandemic is, is forced us to think, what is church really all about anyway? How he, he, he burst the model that was working so well for us <laughs> and says, okay, now can you follow me where I'm leading here? It's the same as getting in physical shape, which I don't think I'll ever do again. But I have done it many times in my life, gotten out of shape and gone back to a good level of fitness. I should try that again one day. Um, but it, have you ever done that? It hurts. You start and you wake up the next day and it hurts. Because you need to be where you're not. And very often our concept of God, we need to move it to another place. And as we let go of the old one, very often it hurts. James writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, the point is that the pain comes in leaving behind the faults, the false idea of what Jesus is going to be, and moving toward the true idea of what Jesus is, to rebuilding a life on what's solid. He wanted them to see in the temple that day their Jewishness not as a reason for pride and exaltation and power and control, but as an opportunity to be a vehicle, to be a blessing to the whole world. Just like he said to Abraham in Genesis 12. And you, through all the people, through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. There's a great passage in Malachi where God talks about the process of purifying his servants in Malachi 3.3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And it, I read a commentator who talks about this process. I've never refined silver, obviously. That's not something we do. They teach you in seminary and don't have a lot of need for it around here. But he says that in that day what they would do is they would take the silver and they would melt it down on this hot fire in this bowl into this liquid form and the dross, all the impurities would come to the top and they would scrape them off. This, this huge hot fire would, would bring the impurities out. And the way the silversmith knew the silver was purified was when there was no more impurities and they could see their reflection in the silver. And I love that because that's, you know, that, that's this process of letting go of our false view of what Jesus is and moving to the true view. It, it's, it, it's painful because it's bringing up all these things that we've built our life around that aren't solid. But we know we've gotten there when we look like Jesus. That, that's the goal. That's what Jesus is doing in us. He's refining and purifying us from this, this painful surrender to this healing freedom. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come to bring good news of jubilee to the poor and freedom to the captives and the oppressed. And I want you all to join in that with me. But it means instead of just holding this for yourself, you have to open your eyes to what God wants to do in the whole world. And to reflect Jesus means that we have to become less and he has to become more, just like John the Baptist said. And it's a painful process of beginning to see things as they really are, of letting go of control, of using our emotional outbursts as indicators, a warning light on the dashboard of our life to say, something's going on underneath there. Better explore, better get into the mechanic shop and see if we can figure out what's going on there. And to move from painful surrender to healing freedom. That, that, that's the good news, right? That the freedom comes, that the... The, the poor are, aren't left broken. But it comes in ways that disarm us. It comes in ways that challenge our assumptions. And it comes in ways that reshape who we are. And believe it or not, guess what? That's what the new year holds. That's what's coming. Because Jesus said that he will conform you to the, or the Father will conform you to the image of the Son. He is going to take you through what he needs to do to make you look like Jesus. The question is, will you open your eyes to that? Will you allow him to let you see how he does it and trust that he's going to do it throughout this new year? Let's pray. God, we are thankful. It's a hard message uh, for us to think through the ways that we've domesticated you, the ways we've, we've kind of made you 
our poster boy. We have expectations for how our life will be when we follow you. And yet what you want to do is completely remake us to look like you. And so give us courage to, to accept that, to let, to let our eyesight be healed, to let our eyes be opened, and to trust that you are leading in ways that will bring your blessing not only to us but to the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to share uh, that Malachi verse one more time. I just want you to hear the confidence in it. I'm going to change the wording just a little bit to apply as a promise to us. He, God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify his people and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men and women who will bring offerings in righteousness. That's, he, he will get it done. And the, the key thing for us is to surrender and have open eyes this week as you go out. Um, and I want to say God bless you, but I'm also going to invite the Goulds up. So if you have to go, you can go. But if you want to stay, I'd love to, for them to come and share. Come on. Is everybody coming up? Come on up. Have a seat. And we'll stay online, so stick with us online too. Hi, Jeff. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, the deal was they, they weren't necessarily going to come up, but they're there. Um, can you? Just come now, guys, and then you can stand. Thanks. It's okay. Here they are. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should take your masks off for 10 seconds. <laughs> this is tech. Different world. Take, 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 take your mask off for for 10 seconds. Then there you go. You'll you'll notice that some of us are taller than others. I'm the, I'm the third highest. No. Okay. Um, truly a joy to be here. Like um, just faithful proclamation of God's word makes my makes me cry. Um, yeah, we bring you greetings from from South Africa from the church. It's it it really never we've traveled a lot in our lives. It never ceases to amaze me the absolute unity in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter where you go. And culture, language, whatever disappears into that Jesus that we're talking about, that you guys are talking about here. And, and so our little church, which is kind of a church plant. Um, you can hit that slide, Rob. That uh, We bring you greetings from there, South Africa. Um, I don't know how many of you get our newsletter, but... but um, Couple slides. These are these are like things. This is actually our youth uh, group. Some of who go to the church. Some some kind of join us just for the Sunday, because with this thing we're doing with youth, because of COVID, we're we're meeting. Um, we call it families with teens. So there's mainly three sets of parents and our our children who are home, like not Nathaniel, um, but whoever of our own children are at home, and then various of their friends who come. And we have a very discussion-oriented uh, time. This is uh, talking about the Holy Spirit and how to listen to the Holy Spirit and, and obey the promptings of, of the Spirit. You can hit the next one. And then this is um, on our back porch at our house. We have a, a very big house at this point, I'll show you. But uh, we meet with the youth in various people's homes, generally. And so this is our back porch. And, of course, it's outside because it's South Africa. 
um, and then quite a large collection of people in, in a very sort of crazy society, if you know about South Africa, just quite unequal. Um, we can hit the next one. This is uh, one of our friend's uh, houses, his... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> this happens. <laughs> Normally Sarah helps me. <laughs> sorry, love. She's a much better speaker than I am. <laughs> Give the guy a microphone and he starts crying immediately. Okay. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so yeah, we're just very, very blessed now. You know, we've ended our job with MCC, so let's just kind of give a little background. For those of you who didn't know, about four and a half years ago, we left here. We'd been here for eight years, and we went with Mennonite Central Committee to South Africa to oversee their work in South Africa, Lesotho, and Eswatini in Southern Africa. MCC, like so many international NGOs right now, um, is tightening its belt. Donations are down repeatedly year after year, and so they had to close their work in that part of Africa and in a few other parts of the world. So our job there ended, but we decided to stay in South Africa. We love it there, it's our other home. We're dual citizens, very blessed to be dual citizens and to therefore not be forced out of the country. So we're staying, doing a variety of uh, interesting things and he's gonna get to that. But one of the things we're doing is we are involved in this little church plant. So it's a, a, one of the main goals of the church plant is to be multicultural, multilingual, multi-socioeconomic. So, which, to be honest, if you're in South Africa, what other way is there to be as a believer? That's kind of always been our stance. And so it involves, you know, people like us that bought an old farmhouse <laughs> that's a really lovely big fixer-upper, and it involves people that live in um, informal settlements, and Jeff started crying because this young man is, is now an orphan. His mom was a friend of mine, and she, um, she died this year. And so the church has been coming around them to rebuild the house, which fell in. We get a lot of rain in our part of South Africa. Overall, it is a dry country, especially compared to Canada. But where we live in South Africa, we get a lot of rain. And it does damage to a lot of informal housing, as you can imagine. So this was um, a project that the church got behind. How you doing? Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you can hit the next one, thanks. So part of the house was made of mud and the rain had taken it down. So that's Michael there and another guy, Spoo. Uh, and we basically, the church had, had uh, decided they would give, put money uh, to buy the materials. Um, and we hold them up because it's, uh, it's, quite a remote spot in terms of like getting vehicles in. You can hit the next one, Rob. Um, and then the, the boy's uncle uh, is, is a builder, and so he, he did the actual building work, um, and that's just him finishing off on top there on the roof. Uh, and, and now it's all good. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, Nate Nathaniel uh, is studying in Cape Town. 
This is him with his, with his cousin um, up a mountain somewhere. I'm not exactly sure which one, but he sent this to us, so I just wanted to do that. You can hit the next one, Rob. Um, this is Michael. It's like a prom, South African prom, uh, and this was actually a homeschool one, not for the school. He, he went to school for a couple of years, but this was a homeschool one. You can hit the next one. And uh, this is just an old homeschool friend, I mean, a friend of long standing, I mean, uh, and they, he went as her partner. And uh, it was actually quite cool. I think we can say homeschooling is, is growing uh, in South Africa for a variety of reasons. Sarah would tell you if you catch her. But um, this was really fun. It was the first of its kind, this, this, this prom time, so it was quite fun. Okay, next one. This, I, I had to just find one picture of Jono. John, or Jono as we call him, is, uh, he's our, he keeps us, keeps us a bit lighter than some of us get too serious, and he makes us laugh, and it's, uh, it's wonderful. This is like a, another buddy of his who's also called John, and he's got another friend who's also called John, and they're all believers in Christ. Um, Jono and Michael got baptized late last year as in 2019, right? And uh, he's, he's buddies, and this is one of our youth gatherings. You can hit the next one, Rob. And then this is, this is the big old farmhouse um, that we, we all five loved as we began to look for a house so where to be. And it's kind of funny. We, instead of buying something that was just going to be very easily affordable and really quite big enough, thank you very much, and all that, at our stage of life, I'm 55, we just felt, no, this is the place God has said. Sarah wanted to do farmy type things. Um, you can hit the next one. This, this doesn't show, we don't own all that land, but we, we own a lot of land. It's an acre, right? It's 10,000 square meters, right? That's an acre, right? Or a hectare. I always get confused. It's big. Uh, it's big, and um, we have about 25 to 30 avocado trees, and we're planting 300 more this month um, in, a, in an intensive style. Um, you can hit the next one. In an intensive style, uh, like a trellis, like grapevines. Apparently, they do this in Israel. So you're doing this with avocados. We're in a very natural avocado area, and um, we're doing it because we need the money, but we also see it as part of what... Uh, Sarah's wanted to be a farmer for a while, and she's going to get to be, I believe, soon. Um, this is a, a young Zulu lady, Leitu Shabalala, who rents, a, rents a, one of our rental units from us, but part of the deal is also she's enjoying getting her hands into the dirt. She's got a master's in environmental something, but she doesn't actually know what it's like to have hands in the dirt. And so now she's getting the practical side of her master's degree. But yeah, uh, next one. This is Sarah. That's the view we have from the house. It's a really lovely area. If ever any of you get a chance, please come. Um, and that's Sarah in, in her, what is going to be her, her caged vegetable uh, growing area. The reason for the cage is otherwise the monkeys will eat all the stuff that we want. They don't eat avocados, thankfully, but... Um, we have to have a cage, otherwise all the 
plants, blueberries, certain types of fruit trees, whatever the monkeys will just have off, have off with them, and there's lots of monkeys around. Uh, next one. That's our living room. Uh, it does get quite cold there, so this is winter. There's no, it's single-pane windows. It's a cement blockhouse, and there's no central heating. So you sit by the fire, and you'll stay there just to stay warm, and then this is one of our, our youth gatherings uh, on the Sunday where, where we're talking about the Lord and having lunch together. Uh, next one. This is just sort of trying to show you the farmy nature of the place. This is just from another angle. Um, sunset time. Uh, and there's one of our big dogs. It's a um, German shepherd. It's a, a, a big slobbery thing, which wasn't naturally what I thought of as it for a dog. But it just felt like a God thing, and we got this dog from a friend, and, and we love them. Some of us love them. <laughs> uh, next one. Um, this is the there's there's avocados on the kitchen table there. So this is the kitchen dining area where we're on on homeschool. Sarah runs homeschool classes from our house. That's part of why we bought the big house, and um, she teaches literature in this kitchen dining room. And then there's an art class uh, that we do in another part of the the property. And then there's a nature studies craft. Um, class that happens out on the back porch. So that's avocados. Yeah, These are the, these are the intensive rows um, where we're going to plant the avos um, in, in the next few weeks, God willing. And that's Tulani in, in both of these pictures. He's a young guy that is it's another friend of ours and came to faith. He's busy coming out, detoxing out of drugs, um, marijuana and other drugs. And has we baptized, he, I had the privilege of um, baptizing him with another guy in, in a local lake, and he has come to work. I'm teaching him uh, carpentry and, and a few things like that. Um, that's like our, our, well, the workbench and whatever, and another one of our dogs. So we did a project for another, actually one of the church elders. He, we took a wine rack and made it into a bookshelf. And so I said, no, that's a great job. And then Tulani, I've been passing on the skills of what that looks like. Um, next one, Rob. This is another young guy who's in our life. Um, really a lovely guy. He's, he's like a son to us and a brother to the boys. We've known him a long time. Um, name is Sile. And uh, he was helping me fix my motorbike there. And again, just passing on skills. Um, those of you who know me know that I like to pass on anything that I know. Uh, next one. As Sarah said, it rains a lot. So this is like a lot there. And that, uh, the building on the right there is, is a cottage that we're, we need to, to get finished this next little while. We've had builders uh, finishing it. You can hit the next one. Um, but I need to do all the, the finished carpentry. This is inside the place. It's, it's quite a spacious uh, spot. Two, two bedrooms and a bathroom. And then this big open, and pla open plan area you see there. Um, and Sarah will use that for one of her homeschool classes, but also we'll have uh, renters who, who are in there. Yeah, and then, of course, rock climbing. Life wouldn't be Jeff without a bit of rock climbing. I've been doing some rock climbing instruction uh, as well. So um, just we'd love you to pray with us and for us. We, we don't know, you know, j jobs for me are not so 
easy to find, but there's plenty to do, of course. Um, Sarah's running a, a classes for homeschoolers as a business, and it's going very well because obviously she's very good at all that. Um, and our heart for, for some of this, the, the house and the use of it is, and has been a, a prophetic word given to us about just kind of a, a small YWAM base um, where we're just having people in and through for a while, short, long, and they're receiving from us and being healed maybe and taught and guided and whatever, and they, they carry on on their way. But obviously, um, how do we fit those? You know, the avocado farm will be part of making that sustainable, and we're not sure all that. I've got a few bookkeeping clients as well. Um, and so we just need wisdom for God to just guide us into the, the next chapter here over the next years. And one last thing, Michael is headed off to YWAM Paris, if you didn't see in our newsletter. He's heading out next week, um, Youth with a Mission, and uh, in Paris and in, and in Europe. And then he's going to come back here and work at Camp Square, thanks Reed, in the kitchen and wherever, camp counselor. And then uh, later come back to university in South Africa. Thank you so much, um, and we were so excited to hear by Rob, like you guys, having people sleep in here in the, just being church, this is what Jesus called us to be, wherever we are, amen. Sorry, I took more than Afri African time. <laughs> That's all right. That's all, I, I, I knew you, so I knew we would. That's great. Um, so we're just going to pray for the Goulds, and if, I'm sure they'll hang around and visit a bit. Um, but if, you, if you're not on their mailing list, get them your email information or your information, and, and you can keep up with them. But no, we do pray for you guys. We usually pray for you to move back to Canada, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll let God do what he wants to do. Let me, let me just pray now, and this will close our service. God, we thank you for the Goulds. Thank you for a short uh, but, but meaningful visit today and uh, a way to catch up. And we do pray for wisdom for them as they uh, look for direction, as the kids are getting older and and launching into their own lives, so we just pray that you will guide their steps, that you will use them where you have planted them, and that uh, fruit will, will come forth out of that. Thank you for uh, the connection we have with them and the relationships we have with them, and continue to bless those and nurture those as they encourage us and we encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.